Words written in Mark's Gospel are your very words, your words to your people. And oh, Father, how we need your word in our lives today. Father, many of us are going through various struggles where we need comforting, we need guidance. Perhaps many of us are a bit apathetic, Lord, and perhaps need to be made uncomfortable. Lord, we pray that whatever situation that you find us in tonight, that through your Holy Spirit speaking through your word, you would speak into where we are. And as you do so, Lord, I pray that we would be moulded and shaped into the image of Jesus Christ. And as we become more like him, may we be more equipped to proclaim your kingdom to a world that is dying and a world that is lost. Father, would you speak to us this evening with power and authority from your word. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, we're going to just be in Mark chapter 1, verses 14 to 45. So if you turn to there in the church Bibles, that's page uh, 1002. And in the large print, that's page 1556. Now, before I started in my role here, I used to employ uh, people quite often. And you can have an interview with people, but it's only really when they start the job that you really work out and know who you've actually got. And I guess you're finding that out with Paula and I, and as I'm the one usually that stands up the front, I can tell you the stories about Paula, but you can find out stuff about me yourself when you ask her, perhaps. But a story that I want to tell you is something that might come as a shock to you. And that is, you know Paula's parents are from America, but what you don't know is that Paula struggles to get into America because she was refused a visa. Now, you may be wondering, what on earth could Paula, with American parents, have done to be refused a visa? And I'll tell you what she had done. She had tried to go to the States before she got married. She didn't have a house She didn't have a a permanent job, and they wouldn't let her in because they said, you haven't got enough reason to come back. She said, well, I could could have just gone and run away, and you would never have known. And she went the honest route, but she was refused a visa. But now, every time that Paula has to go to the States, she has to tick a box that says, I've been refused a visa. And every time we go, we're met with these sceptical immigration, not immigration, but border control uh, people, who always are looking at us with suspicion, and Paula has to prove who she is, but also why she is going to America. And now, because she's married, apparently I'm a good enough reason for her to come back. But also, uh, she now uh, has a home and children and all those things, so there is obviously a a good reason to return. Now, why am I telling you about Paula's uh, extremely questionable past? Well, the reason is because just like when we go to the States and have to prove who we are, and for Paula, why she's going there, Mark attempts to do the same with Jesus. He's he's proving who Jesus is, but also proving to a sceptical audience why Jesus came. And that is Mark chapter 1, in a nutshell. It's explaining who he is, 
and proving why he came. And Mark wants us to go through this rapidly. That's how he wrote it. We go through it, we could go through this chapter in eight or nine sermons, uh, but we're not. We're going to go through it, most of it, just in one tonight. And a key word in this passage is the word immediately, which appears in various forms throughout the passage with phrases such as without delay, quickly, as soon as, and at once. And as Tim pointed out to us last week, Mark's focus is on the works of Jesus and not the words at this point. His focus in the first half of the book is to prove who Jesus is, that he is the Messiah. And we saw last week the baptism, which, if you like, was the coronation of the king. And the rest of this chapter shows how he has the authority of the king, and that he is the king of the kingdom. In last week's passage, we also saw how Jesus has power and authority over Satan, in that he was tempted, yet he did not sin. And now, through the rest of this passage that we're going to look at this evening, we see how he has power and authority over other things as well. And it shows us that the message he's proclaiming and the person he proclaims to be are true. Verse 14 in Mark chapter 1 tells us, After John was put into prison, Jesus went into Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God. Jesus was proclaiming, or he was preaching, the good news. And the whole of this chapter, and in fact the whole of the first uh, half of Mark, is showing how Jesus' message was true. And that the person behind the message is the Messiah. And what was the message? Well, look at the next part of that verse. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. The time has come, or the era has arrived. The kingdom of God is near. And this was an amazing message. People have been waiting for the kingdom of God. Isaiah wrote 700 years before Jesus had arrived. They had been waiting, and now, Jesus says, now the time has come. God had promised that he would rule and reign in a new and powerful way. The kingdom is near because the king has arrived. And how should we respond to this king? Well, we're told simply, repent and believe the good news. That word repent means to turn around and go in a a different direction. And to believe means to place confidence in and trust. And when we recognise Jesus as king, we're to turn from what we were once following and turn to follow him as our king. And we believe in him, we trust him. We trust that his rule and his ways are what is best for us. And in this passage, we see four ways that Jesus proves himself to be the king of the kingdom. And we see four responses to that proclamation. And as we've said, the response should be, repent and believe. But Mark shows us that this isn't always how people responded to his power and authority. And the first way Jesus shows us this is his power and authority over sinners. Look at verses 16 to 18. 
As Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come and follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and followed him. Now so often this is mistakenly read as some sort of blind faith that these fishermen had, that some guy just rocked up, told them to leave everything they'd known and go and follow him. But Mark, in his Gospel, omits certain things that have happened previously. Mark omits the ministry that John records Jesus as having in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria before this had happened. These disciples, at this point, knew who Jesus was. They didn't just have some guy come up to their fishing boats and tell them, just leave it all and drop all your business, drop your livelihood, and come follow me. It'd be crazy if they were to do so, wouldn't it? John's Gospel in chapter 1 and verses 35 to 42 tell us that Simon and Andrew were at the baptism of John and they would have heard John declare that Jesus was the Lamb of God. And they had followed Jesus for a time there, but not permanently. They declared an interest in him, but they went back to their fishing occupations for a time. So when Jesus came to them, he called people that he'd already met, people that knew him, people that had seen him in action, seen him show signs that he was the Messiah. And when he called them to follow, they immediately left their nets and followed him. They obeyed because they knew that he is the Lamb of God. Now we know they didn't fully understand who he was. It's not to the middle of Mark where Peter declares that you are the Messiah, you are the Christ, that he fully understands. But they knew who Jesus was. Not exactly that he was the Messiah. They didn't understand everything, but they knew who he was. They left their livelihoods at once because the king had come to call them. And the king has authority over sinners to call to follow him. And we see a similar scenario in verses 19 and 20. When he had gone a little, bit, little farther, he saw James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat, preparing their nets. Without delay, he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed him. In this case, we see that James and John not, didn't just leave their livelihoods behind. They left their family. They left their father, the family business. We're not told how Zebedee uh, felt when his sons got up and just left him in the boat. Who knows how he felt? But Jesus called these sinners to follow him. The king had called, and they left, and they followed him. Because they knew who he was. They knew Jesus, and they followed him. And the call of the king, or the call of the kingdom, requires us to leave some things behind, doesn't it? It requires sacrifice. Perhaps some of you are going to have to surrender your reputation at school or in your workplace by declaring your faith. Your king is calling you to do that. Perhaps some of you have been called to serve the Lord in such a way that you have to sacrifice career aspirations that you wanted. And like these disciples had to leave behind lucrative careers. 
You know, these disciples, the, uh, especially Zebedee, we know it was a rich business. He had hired men. A bit later, it seems that Peter uh, and his brother, Andrew, had a house, which is where his mother-in-law was. It, it seems that they were not just really poor and destitute people. They left behind businesses to follow Jesus. Perhaps there are sins that you really enjoy doing, that your king is calling you to stop. Perhaps there are hobbies that you need to curtail in order to follow Jesus more effectively and fervently. The call of the kingdom requires us to leave some things behind. It requires sacrifice. But you know, the sacrifice is hard, but it's a privilege to serve the king. And it's a privilege to be in the kingdom. And we're in a kingdom that lasts forever. It's spiritual now, but will be physical when we're with God. And it will be fully consummated when there will be a new heaven and a new earth that we will dwell with him in for eternity. The end is worth the sacrifice. It seems so hard, doesn't it, now, in our current state, to to leave things behind and to give things up. It's not always easy. We don't always want to. It's easy to stay in our fishing boats and be comfortable. But Jesus calls us to leave some things behind. But he calls us to a kingdom that lasts forever. The treasure that we have in Christ is worth so much more and is so much greater than anything we can leave behind. But the kingdom calls us to sacrifice. Paul the Apostle says that I consider that our present sufferings are not worth, worthy to be compared with the glory that will be revealed in us. What we sacrifice now, what we suffer now for the kingdom, is not even worth comparing to the glory that we will receive in Christ in the future. These disciples were not foolish in giving up their livelihoods. They trusted the king and they knew that he had authority over sinners. Following the king is hard, but it's always, always worth it. We have the greatest treasure in all the universe if we're part of the kingdom of God. But as we move on through this passage, we actually see that there are three scenes in this passage. And they cover about 12 months of Jesus' ministry. The first scene is what we've just looked at, where the disciples were called. The third scene is at the end, uh, with with the leper being healed. But the second scene, which is the majority of our passage, is verses 21 to 39. And this covers just one day. And we get a glimpse in a day in the life of Jesus, the Messiah. And the scene begins with Jesus going to Capernaum on the Sabbath and entering the synagogue. Look at verses 21 to 22 with me. They went to Capernaum, and when the Sabbath came, Jesus went into the synagogue and began to teach. The people were amazed at his teaching, because he taught them as one who had authority, not as the teachers of the law. We know from Luke's accounts in chapter 4 and verses 14 to 15 where he says that Jesus' fame at this point was spreading and he was teaching in synagogues wherever he went. And word had arrived about what had been happening in Judea. And by the time he arrived in Capernaum, people wanted him to teach and it became apparent why why they wanted Jesus to do this. When Jesus taught, he had authority Jesus had authority and power in his teaching. 
Now, when rabbis taught the law, or teachers of the law, they would always be explaining what someone else had said. So they would pick up uh, a scroll, if you like, and they would say, well, according to uh, rabbi such and such, this is, this is what it means. You see, they would always speak on the authority of someone else. It would be a bit like me coming to you and, and, and reading a commentary and saying, well, this is what the, this commentator says, this is what this commentator says, and this is what this commentator says. And there's nothing wrong with that as such. It's good to refer to other commentators, but these rabbis, that's, that's, that's what they did. They were just reading off other people's authority. But Jesus was different. He taught them as one who had authority. And it's not all bad, you know, because when I preach, I don't preach on my own authority, I preach on the authority of the Holy Spirit. God invests authority in a preacher to preach his word. But Jesus is different from even a Christian in today, because he spoke of his own authority. You see, the rabbis had authority uh, from others, Jesus had his own The rabbi is taught by the authority of someone else. Jesus had it himself. And we see this uh, clearly on the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus often says, I say to you. Well, the rabbis would never have said that. Jesus had authority. And having the whole of the New Testament, you can see why. Because John's Gospel describes Jesus as the Word of God. He is the Word of God. He wrote the Word of God. He spoke the word of God. The whole Bible is about him. So it's no wonder when we look back through the eyes of the the Holy Spirit and the completed canon that we can see that Jesus had authority. But for these people, this was amazing. They were amazed at this teaching with authority. But they were just amazed. Last month, or actually it wasn't, it was the month before, we had Christmas and we looked at the account of the shepherds. And when they went and told everybody about Jesus, it says many were amazed. But it doesn't say that they did anything else. The word amazed here means struck with. They were just struck. Wow, this is amazing. As just like if you see an amazing um, gymnast or something, do something really, you know, you stand there, wow, it's amazing. But they didn't do anything about it. And we can be amazed at the teaching of Jesus, but not take that amazement any further. We can become spiritually fat and lazy. You know, I find fish and chips amazing. We had fish and chips the other day, and I went with Tim and Megan, and you know, Megan doesn't like fish. I'm so glad I went with Megan, because I got extra fish. I love fish and chips. I also love donuts, and coming from Devon, I find cream teas really amazing. But if I just eat cream teas and fish and chips and donuts and do no exercise, then I'm going to become overweight and lazy, aren't I? And we can become the same when we just read the Bible but don't exercise in ministry. If we're just reading the Bible and we're feeling you know, super spiritual but we're not doing anything with it, we become spiritually fat and lazy. In the same way as if we don't read our Bibles, we become spiritually thin, weak, and we, we, we start to die. A similar thing happens when we just read the Scriptures and don't do anything about what we read. In fact, James tells us that if we are reading the Bible, doers of the Word, we're hearers only, we deceive ourselves. 
You know, it's like uh, Paula's sister thinks that a banana and chocolate chip muffin is one of her five a day. But if she keeps eating them all the time and does no exercise, she's deceiving herself. It's the same when we read the scriptures. We deceive ourselves if we don't do what it says. Now, I love the Bible. And I have a privilege of being able uh, to teach it and spend time looking at it. I've got books that tell me all sorts of really wonderful things. In fact, there's times, in fact, every time, every week, I come out of my office, I run into the house and I say, Paula, look at this, I've never seen this before. This is amazing. And all that's really good, but if I don't apply what I learn in ministry, then I'm just spiritually fat and lazy. We are taught by the king so we can live for the king. We are taught by the king so we can live for the king. Don't just be amazed. Now, be amazed, because these things are amazing, but don't leave it there. Be amazed, but live out what these amazing things teach us to do. Jesus has power and authority in his teaching. And as Jesus was teaching, there was one response which was most unusual. Look at verses 23 and 24. Just then, a man in their synagogue who was possessed by an impure spirit cried out, What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Well, the people were were amazed at Jesus' teaching, but there was someone here that had a demon. And the people were amazed, but the demons were terrified. The people were amazed, but the demons were were terrified. They were terrified of the truth being taught, but more than the truth, they were terrified of the teacher who taught it. You see, the disciples at this point don't really know who Jesus is. They know know him, but they don't really know him, if you see what I mean. The people at the synagogue think, he's amazing. We'll see shortly that when he was healing, people thought that he was a miracle worker, But no one really recognized him. But the demons here recognized him, the Holy One of God. And if Christ is to be the Messiah, if he's to be the one to come and crush Satan's head, he better have power over the power of this world. And he's shown power over Satan in the temptation, but here we see that Jesus has authority and power over the demons as well. The demons thought that Jesus had come to destroy them. In 1 John chapter 3 and verse 8, we read these words. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. 1 John chapter 3 verse 8. And when Christ sets up his kingdom, they knew that Satan and his demons would be bound. They knew that Jesus was going to cast them into the lake of fire. And they were asking, is it now? They were terrified. But Jesus did not completely destroy them just yet. Instead, he told them in verse 25, Be quiet, Jesus said sternly. Come out of him. The impure spirit shook the man violently and came out of him with a shriek. Jesus spoke. And the demons obeyed. It wasn't time either to destroy them. And it wasn't time either for Jesus to be publicly proclaimed as the Son of God. 
You see, Jesus would not accept the testimony of a demon as to who he was. His authority rested on his person, not on the testimony of a demon. And if he was to accept the testimony of a demon, of course, people would think him part of demonic things. And later on, we'll see, he was actually accused of that. But he would not let the demons speak because they knew who he was. That's what verse 34 tells us in this passage as well, which uh, we'll read later. He would not let them speak because they knew who he was. The demons knew. And they came out with a shriek. They were terrified of the Holy One of God. The people were amazed, but the demons were terrified. In fact, the people were more amazed than they were before. Look at verse 27. They were all so amazed, they asked each other, What is this? A new teaching and with authority. He gives orders to impure spirits and they obey him. They were even more amazed, but the demons were terrified. And again, the people were just amazed. They didn't see the terror of the demons. They just saw an amazing teacher. They missed the point. Now, there's a really cheesy film that um, was out years ago called Twister. I don't know if any of you have ever seen it. I say it's cheesy because like, I was watching it for the tornadoes and there's like a love story in it. And like I was a teenager at the time, and even now I'm not that into love stories. And then I really wasn't into love stories. But this film was about a twister, which was a tornado. And there's a point in the film where they... Uh, the, the point of the film is these people are trying to um, put these special scientific devices into the twisters to measure, measure them and, and try and predict when they're going to come. And there's a point in the film where they drive up and they release their devices into the tornado... And they're standing there, and they're amazed at this tornado. And it's coming right at them. They are amazed, but when they see it coming, they are terrified. They turn, they run, and they get shelter, and they like chain themselves to these pipes, and the tornado comes, and they're saved, and it's all a happy ending. But they were amazed, because tornadoes are amazing. If you've ever, ever seen one, apparently they had one in Birmingham, didn't they, a couple of years ago. But they are amazing to look at. But you wouldn't want to be in one because it's terrifying, isn't it? And uh, awesome weather like that is amazing, but terrifying. And perhaps some of you here this evening are finding these things amazing. But as you see Jesus in his word as the Holy One of God, he also is terrifying. Because just as Jesus came to judge the demons, he's coming again to judge sinners. And just like he's casting demons into the lake of fire, that's the same as what happens to sinners. When faced with our sin before the Holy One of God, if we really see Jesus for who he is, he is terrifying. We often think of Jesus as the baby in the manger, but he's coming again as the judge in the clouds, and he is terrifying. He's terrifying. Jesus doesn't want just your amazement, but your fear. But like the people that saw the twister, so that you can run for salvation. And you run to Jesus for salvation. You see, like the tornado coming, it's awesome, it's amazing, but it's terrifying. But we have somewhere we can run to. We have Jesus who has come to save us. He saves us from the penalty of sin. We have a grace that the demons do not have. We have a saviour, a messiah, who has paid for our sin. And if we can... Repent and believe. There is no need to be terrified. 
because we've been saved by Jesus Christ. At the same time, we ought to have a fear of God, shouldn't we? We should fear the Lord because he is an awesome God. We shouldn't treat him lightly. Jesus has power and authority over demons. Well, the next verse tells us that, having seen this, news spread quickly over the whole region of Galilee. And this is a prelude to to everyone coming to him for healing. As they hear the news in the rest of the passage tonight, we see that Jesus has power and authority over disease. Look at verse 29. As soon as they left the synagogue, they went with James and John to the home of Simon and Andrew, Simon's mother-in-law. She was in bed with a fever. And immediately Jesus told, uh, uh, was told about her. So he went to her, took her hand, helped her up, and the fever left her, and she began to wait on them. As news spread, people came from everywhere to Jesus for healing. And you can see why. Jesus just touched Peter's mother-in-law with his hand. Awesome power. He touched with his hand, and she was healed. And this was just one healing of many. Look at the passage continuing. That evening after sunset, the people brought to Jesus all the sick and demon-possessed. It's like he wiped out disease and demon possession from whatever town he went to. The whole town gathered at the door. And Jesus healed many who had various diseases. He drove out many demons, but he would not let them speak because they knew who he was. Now remember that Jesus came to Capernaum on the Sabbath day. And the people came after sunset because they waited for the Sabbath restrictions on carrying people to finish. But as soon as that time came, that clock ticked, they were coming to Jesus. They were coming from all over, all over the town, to have Jesus bring healing. But notice that people came not to worship him, but because they wanted something from him. There had never been anything like this. In the Old Testament, yes, there was healing, but nothing like this. Elisha healed many people, but nowhere near like Jesus. He healed whole whole towns. But they were not interested in who he was, only in what he could do. And this would have caused great temptation for Jesus. The same temptation he faced in the wilderness, to throw himself off the temple, which was uh, to make people see him and make him Messiah straight away, would have been a temptation here. And we see in verse 35 that very early in the morning, while it was dark, Jesus got up, left the house, went off to a solitary place where he prayed. In this passage, we know that solitary or desert places remind us of the temptation. And Jesus would have been tempted to make him king now. Forget about the crucifixion, Jesus. Forget about the the suffering and pain. They'll make you king now. Look at what you can do. You can heal. That's what the temptation was in the wilderness. And he goes into the wilderness again and he prays. While it's still dark, he went to a solitary place where he prayed. He prayed. And it was a distraction. The healing was a distraction from his purpose. And we'll see what that purpose is. Look at verses 36 and 37. Simon and his companions went looking for him, and when they found him, they exclaimed, everyone is looking for you. And you can imagine, if I uh, had some special powers, uh, you know, and I set myself up in Pelsall Church, people would come if they knew 
from all over, wouldn't they? And that's what was happening here. They, everyone is looking for you, Jesus. And what did Jesus say? He replied, let us go somewhere else, to the nearby villages, so I can preach there also. That is why I have come. Jesus was not interested in staying to heal people. Not because he didn't care, but because the reason he had come, to, he had come was to preach. To proclaim the good news that the kingdom of God has come near. He has authority over disease, but it was to show he was the Messiah. It authenticated his message, but it's not the reason he came. And so he travelled through Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and driving out demons. He repeated in other villages in Galilee what he had done in Capernaum, preaching the gospel of the kingdom. And the response of distraction to the healing ministry of Jesus is shown again in the final scene of this passage which happened sometime later in verse 40. A man with leprosy came to him and begged him on his knees, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Now we need to understand something about leprosy here. Leprosy was an awful disease that made you unclean. And it was a disease that was incurable. Because you were unclean, that is, Um, declared unclean in the Bible means that you, you cannot go into the temple to worship. In fact, you couldn't be near anybody. You were barred from the temple. You had to be a distance away from populous areas. And people would cry out to you, unclean, unclean, when you were walking around. And he was breaking the Levitical law even by coming near to Jesus because he was forbidden from being near anybody. And this man had faith in Jesus, not only that he could be healed, but above all, that he could be made clean. All other diseases were healed. Leprosy in the Bible is made clean. And this man came to Jesus to be made clean. Well, how did Jesus respond? Well, as our home group apparently found out on Thursday, we don't really know how he responded exactly with the next words of the verse. The new NIV has the phrase, Jesus was indignant. And the old NIV, in most other translations, has the words, Jesus was filled with compassion. Now, they're two completely different words. Indignant is like an anger. Compassion is, well, compassion, obviously. Well, Rich is right. Well, the reason for the difference is that some older texts of, in the Greek have the Greek word for indignant... And some have the Greek word for moved with compassion. And it's unlikely, in my opinion, that a translator would change the word from compassion um, to indignant, unless it was there. Because compassion is an easier way to describe how Jesus would have felt. It's It's an easier translation, if you like. It's easier to understand why Jesus would be compassionate than indignant. So therefore, I think the word is indignant. But it doesn't really matter too much because why would Jesus be indignant? For the same reason he would be compassionate. He was indignant because of the effects of leprosy on the person. The fact that it banished them from God's presence. The fact that they were banished from the temple, from communion with God's people. It was an appalling impact on someone's life. He was indignant. He was compassionate. And we can debate which word it is after if you really want to. 
But look what he actually did. He reached out his hand and he touched the man. I am willing, he said, be clean. Immediately the leprosy left him and he was cleansed. In Leviticus 5 verse 3, we're told that a leprous man, by touching him, you were made unclean. But Jesus did this for the man. He touched him and the man was made clean. And he took the uncleanness to himself as he made him clean. Now Jesus didn't become leprous because he is the perfect son of God. But the picture is clear there, isn't it? But then Jesus does something strange. He sent him away at once with a strong warning. See that you don't tell this to anyone, but go. Show yourself to the priests and offer the sacrifices that Moses commanded for your cleansing as a testimony to them. Sent him away literally means he threw him out. And the strong warning is like an angry, angry tone. He wanted the man to go to the high priest and offer sacrifices. Again, this is from Leviticus. Jesus wanted to show he was the Son of God who cleanses people. His focus was not on the healing itself, but on the fulfilling of the law, the doctrine, and therefore the testimony to the priest. The healing was to proclaim the kingdom has come, and I am the king. But Mark tells us that the man disobeyed. Instead, he went out and began to talk freely, spreading the news. As a result, Jesus could no longer enter a town openly, but stayed outside in the lonely places. This man did not really believe in Jesus, but he actually just wanted to get rid of the leprosy. He was distracted from what Jesus had really done and what Jesus had asked him to do. True faith is shown by obedience, and this man blatantly disregarded what Jesus said. And we can be distracted from what's really going on in this cleansing. If we focus only on the man, if we focus only on whether it's indignant or compassionate, or how awesome it is that Jesus can just touch someone and their leprosy disappears, how cool is that? We miss the point. Because this passage is a picture of the atonement, of how Jesus has cleansed us from our sin by taking our uncleanness on placing it on himself and in giving us his righteousness or his cleanness. And the passage ends up with Jesus being in the lonely places himself. He swapped places with the leper. The leper came from the lonely places. He came to Jesus and Jesus touched him and he was healed. And as Jesus touched him, Jesus took his uncleanness away but ended up in the lonely places himself, which is exactly what he has done for us. He was forsaken by God like we are in our sin. He gives us his righteousness so we can be in the presence of God. The leprous man went to the temple. We can go to the throne of grace because Jesus has cleansed us from our sin. It's wonderful, isn't it? But if we just focus on the fact he was healed, we focus on just the touch or the indignancy, we miss the point. And that's the thing. People came for him, to him from everywhere, and he healed many, but they were distracted. Me and Paula had some good friends down in Devon, and uh, their names were 
Roy and Evelyn Chalacombe. And Roy uh, has died now, but we remember when he was dying. And he was in hospital, and his wife would go and visit him every day. And she would come to the prayer meetings. And we would hardly ever hear a mention of a prayer request that Roy would get better. She was constantly telling us of the opportunities she had to share the gospel with patients on the beds either side, uh, to the nurses and the doctors. And she was asking us to pray for them, that they would come to know Christ. If she had come and just focused on his sickness and nothing else, it would have been a distraction for her. Because she recognized the key thing was to call people to the kingdom of God, to point people to the king. She was such an example to us. And there are so many distractions from the kingdom. Healing can be a distraction from the real purpose that Jesus came for, which was to preach the gospel. Healing ministry can be a distraction if that's all it is. If it's just to heal people and to make people better for now without calling them to Jesus, it's a distraction. Because there's a lot of people that are perfectly well that are on their way to hell. They need to be saved. On the conference that we went to on Thursday, we were told that works of service and social justice initiatives, as good as they are, can be a distraction, if that is all they are. Our priority is to do good works, of course, but it's mainly to proclaim the kingdom. And all that we do should be to do that. And we can be distracted from proclaiming the gospel by having an earthly focus and not thinking about proclaiming it at all, but rather being wholly focused on our lifestyle or on things of this world. Our focus should be on things of heaven, not on earthly things. We can spend too much time being distracted by earthly worries rather than focus on heavenly treasures. So my question as we close is, how do you respond to the Messiah who proves himself to us with such power and authority? You know, the kingdom of God is wherever the king is. And if he is in you, you are part of the kingdom. And we must repent and believe. We must turn from sin and follow the king. But we must be prepared to bear the cost and leave things behind. We must be prepared not just to be amazed at his teaching, but to live it out in our lives. We must fear the Lord and ensure it drives us to trust and obey him. And we must not be distracted by things of this earth that stop us striving for heavenly treasures. And as we do these things, we proclaim the same message as Jesus, that others would follow the same path. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. So let let us this week be proclaimers of God's kingdom this week and pray that God's kingdom would come to this area in power and authority. We're going to sing, uh, Let Your Kingdom Come. And as we do so, let it be a prayer from our hearts that God's kingdom will come, his will will be done, and may it be done in this area where we live.